Word of God to Matthew chapter 17, and we pick up in our series in verse 14, reading through verse 27. Again, welcoming those who are visiting among us. There's an outline as well on pages 4 and 5. Hear now the word of God. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the lake and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Kids, this is not a fish story. This is a true story. The Bible is not a collection of fables and loosely connected random bits of information. This is a story that tells us again of Christ, two stories in fact, who has come, the Son of God from heaven, in power and in compassion to save us from our sins, to show us his glory and to bring us to himself. We see in a connection here that this is what the Bible is all about, 66 books, 40 authors, it's God's plan to save a sinful people for himself through Christ. And so we begin with the first of these two accounts, and as we look at them, we see the responses varying from unbelief to faith. First, the divine Christ rebukes a demon. They have been on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus and James and John and Peter, They come from that glory to the valley below. They come from a picture of the divine Christ and all his beauty to sin and all of its ugliness. There's been arguing down below the mountain. Some people see a similarity with Moses 
when he left the mountain and saw the idolatry of the people of Israel in the book of Exodus. There's been arguing. There's been scribes who are perhaps taunting the disciples. Mark's gospel brings this out, maybe in relation to the fact that they were not able to cast the demon out of this boy. Jesus and the other three disciples join them. There's 12 of them. And now we see a father who is distraught, who is coming to Jesus. Can you imagine this mom and dad saying, help my boy, my only son. Jesus, have mercy upon him. The father literally says his boy is moonstruck. That's the literal phrase, meaning there's an ancient belief that seizures were related to the cycles of the moon. He suffered from these fits and these seizures. His boy is possessed by an evil spirit. There's some sort of a connection between demon possession and these diseases. We're not sure exactly how, but Satan is afflicting him, seizing the boy. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth. He screams. He convulses. And the seizures have put him in danger. He has all sorts of wounds on his body because this demon causes him to go into the burning fire and perhaps almost to drown in the water. He's being crushed and afflicted. It's continuous. He's wallowing. He can't speak. He can't hear. He's had this from childhood. The need is such that no human can help him. And the father says, Jesus, your disciples couldn't help him either. They failed to drive out the demon. In Matthew, we've noticed over and over the emotional life of Jesus. We've seen that he is abundant in compassion. Here we see his righteous frustration. Jesus is distressed at the unbelief of the crowds who just wanted another show, perhaps, to cause them to wonder and to be amazed. The unbelief of the scribes, who themselves, some of them maybe were exorcists, who perhaps were trying to do something as well. And the unbelief of the disciples. Unbelief, not trusting God, denying his sovereign right to rule. We are all born by nature, dead in sin, and unbelief is the natural heart of the unbeliever. Jesus says, how long should I put up with you? He's exasperated. He's quoting here from Exodus 32. The same perversity and unbelief that was going on in the days of Moses and the Old Testament people of God is happening again. He's identifying his disciples here as behaving like unbelievers. They're not unbelievers. But as Calvin said, we all remain partly unbelievers until we die. They're struggling to believe what Jesus said. So it is often with us. Perhaps you've had a week where you're twisted and disordered. Your affections are chaotic. You've had a week maybe where you're just man-centered in your thinking. That's what Jesus is saying here. Warped, crooked, we need to exhort each other in this, Hebrews says, loved ones, as long as it is called today that we would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin.
Do you notice verse 19? The disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't we cast it out? That shows that they are teachable. Do you notice that? They're not stubbornly kind of defending themselves. They're genuinely asking. Jesus says, because of your little faith. Jesus had given them authority to cast out demons. Earlier, we saw that in the Gospels, and they did. So what's happened now? Did they become presumptuous? Did they say, well, it worked before, it's going to work again? Did they just trust the process? Did they just kind of think they could do it? Do you notice that Jesus here is not speaking of the quantity of their faith? That's important. You can't get smaller than a mustard seed. He's going to talk about faith the size of a mustard seed, right? So he's not saying your faith is too little in terms of quantity. But he's speaking of spiritual poverty. He's saying you're acting like unbelievers. He goes on, verse 20. Faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. Where are they standing? Probably right by that mountain of transfiguration. Now, that's not Pike's Peak, kids. It would be maybe like a large hill, you notice, in San Diego or something. But still, a very large hill, at least in that sense. Faith can move a mountain. Not literally. The power of faith is not in itself. It's not a magical thing where you just kind of manipulate reality and name it and claim it and just say, well, I've got faith, I can do this. I've got faith, be well. No. Faith is a conviction that God will never forsake us if we keep the door open for receiving his grace, John Calvin said, if we keep seeking him, if we keep crying out to him, if we keep depending upon him. More important than the amount of faith is the object of faith. Jesus, in fact, says in Mark's gospel, the problem here is the disciples were not praying. They're not trusting God. One pastor brings out an application to us. Sometimes we can often say, well, my gift is this. This text reminds us that Jesus might be saying to us, there's something more important than thinking you or I have a gift. The real question, whether you are depending upon God to exercise that gift. That's profound, because by nature we just want to try harder, turn within. I've got to work up more faith. The problem is I'm not doing enough. That's a lie of Satan. The text is calling us, loved ones, to have faith in Jesus. Not the amount of faith, but Christ who saves through faith, like a power cord, kids, that you plug into the wall as you're maybe helping mom and dad to blow the leaves off of the yard. Some power cords are long, maybe 30 feet. Some are maybe two feet. But they all have that power that comes from the electricity, whether it's a long or short cord. Saving faith that trusts in Christ, that communes with Christ, that loves Christ. Created in us by the Holy Spirit. We don't create this and we don't sustain it. God does. Every day we need to be reminded of this because what are we prone to? To trust ourselves? To trust a 
certain politician, to trust in money, to trust in health, to trust in other people, to trust in our job. Jesus says, trust in me. This man in Mark 9 goes up to Jesus. He says, if you can do anything, please help. Interesting phrase. If? If Christ can do anything? Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible through me. Jesus challenges this man, the Father, who comes with doubts like we do, mixed with faith. The man confesses, God, help my unbelief. That's a prayer for us today. You might think my faith is weak. It's mixed with doubts. But loved ones, even the weakest faith, knowledge, assent, and trust in Jesus, his person, his work, even the weakest faith receives him. It's not strong faith in Christ that saves, but Christ saves through faith. It's not weak faith that condemns, but no faith condemns. Thanks be to God, he doesn't leave us with weak faith. He loves you. He builds up your faith. Hebrews 6, he brings you and I to maturity. As you see more and more his glory, his love, his abundant mercy, his compassion. Often in times of sickness, we doubt. In times of difficulty over a job, a marriage, a diagnosis, and sometimes with our children. Do you notice how often in the Gospels it is a child who is brought to Jesus? That's not random. Because Satan wants to destroy us and our kids. The spiritual battlefield is often around them. The story of this boy is an example of what Satan wants to do to your children and my children. He wants to destroy them. He wants them to be enslaved to him, which we all are by nature until God rescues us. Not only this man's boy, but the daughter of Jairus, the nobleman's son at Capernaum, the daughter of the Canaanite woman, the widow's son at Nain, over and over, The battlefield is around these children, and so it is today. What does this teach us? It teaches us to cry out to God in prayer, to not despair. As long as the child lives and the parent prays, we have have no right to despair over that child's soul. Faith is expressed chiefly in prayer, dependent prayer, communing with God in prayer, Crying out in prayer, God, help. I'm undone by my sins. I can't save myself. Jesus, save me. Jesus, save my child. Jesus, help me trust you to know that you are near, to know that you cause us to stand, that you keep us and preserve us and help us to endure. Beloved, our hope is not in our faith, It's in Jesus whom we cry out to. There's a story of a pastor a hundred years ago who was preaching in Scotland. 
he asked the congregation, what is prayer? He was about to answer it, but then some kids put up their hand. So he said, okay, what is prayer? And the boy proceeded to recite the Westminster Catechism. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will, in the name of Christ, for confession of our sins, and acknowledgement in thankfulness for his mercies. That says it. Oh God, help my unbelief. What will Jesus do here with the unbelief of the disciples? What will he do with this demon-possessed boy? Look at verse 17. How long will I stay with you? This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. You and I, loved ones, as Ephesians 4 says, grieve the Holy Spirit in our unbelief. But God doesn't cast us off. He is infinitely patient. He teaches them. He loves them to the end. He won't dismiss them. He preserves them. Yes, he chastens them because he loves them. And then he says to the disciples, here we go. I'm about to show you that my kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, is breaking in in this present evil age to the father who's struggling. Jesus wants to know about the boy, Mark's gospel says. How long has he been like this? Since childhood. Bring him here. The man brings his son, and Jesus rebukes the demon. He rebuked demons earlier in the gospels. The pointed language says he's healed at that moment with the power of God. He is God in the flesh. Here is the Son of God who comes to destroy the works of the devil, who comes to defeat Satan, to crush his head as God had promised from Genesis 3.15. The healing happens right away, just like with the centurion servant, Matthew 8, with the woman who is bleeding, Matthew 9, with the Canaanite woman's daughter, Matthew 15, the pattern Throughout is the compassion of Christ. He's not a faith healer. He's the son of God. He cares and loves this boy and this father. The inbreaking of the kingdom. The serpent being driven out from occupied territory. The spirit shrieks. The boy's body convulses. And the demon comes out. Satan is a real enemy. But Satan is not God's equal. Jesus gives the boy back to his father. His heart is in this, loved ones. He reverses the boy's condition. And he does the same for every sinner by his spirit that he brings to himself. Every one of his elect. We were once enslaved to Satan, the prince of the power of the air, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, Emmaus wrote. Do you believe? Do you trust in this Jesus? Secondly, the divine Christ pays the temple tax. The scene shifts. Jesus himself moves from 
one section of the country to another. This time, he moves to Capernaum. The pattern is the same. Do the disciples have faith to see that it is through suffering and the cross that glory will come? They were struggling with that. They didn't see how a crucified Savior would be the Messiah that they had promised, that God had promised them in the Old Testament. Jesus again shows his power and compassion. This time in one of the more unique passages in the gospel, I think. No one else talks about this other than Matthew. And what is Matthew? He's a tax collector. So he brings up taxes. Most likely they're at Peter's house. This is not the Romans and their tax. This is what's called a temple tax. So there's an Old Testament background to this. It was not invented by the, the, the men of that day, but by God. Exodus 30 is the background where it speaks of a census and a ransom for the life and paying a half shekel. Really interesting passage. Not saying that you buy your salvation, but saying that the price must be paid for atonement. The gospel is here, promised in Exodus 30 with this tax. It's a flat tax, so everyone pays the same, rich and poor, a half shekel, about three days' wages. It's for the upkeep of the temple, not roads and not property, but the worship of God's people. Temple worship was expensive. Sacrifices, the upkeep, the ongoing maintenance. Originally, it was paid once in your life for all adult Jewish males, but it had kind of changed over the years, and as often happens, it had been distorted. Do you remember when Jesus turns over those money changers' tables in the temple? His righteous anger? They were buying and selling animals for sacrifices and they were making a profit off of it? Well, this is part of the background to that. Jewish pilgrims would come to Jerusalem and often it's during Passover season when they would pay this temple tax. And the currency would be exchanged. They would have to pay a tariff for the change. So people were making all sorts of money off them, and Jesus was righteously angry for what they were doing to distort the worship of God and his people. So here comes this Jewish tax collector. There's rumors about that Jesus himself is disloyal to the temple, that he said he would destroy the temple. He would rebuild it in three days. Is that true? Does your leader, does your teacher, Peter, pay this tax? Interesting question. You're not sure how it's worded. Is it a leading question? We don't have the tone of voice. But Peter, who so often speaks so quickly, says what? Yes. Now, as you read that, does that mean yes, he does or yes, he doesn't? Probably, yes, he does. The scene shifts inside Peter's house. And Jesus beats impulsive Peter, I talk too much without thinking, to the punch. Jesus speaks to Peter about what just had been spoken by the tax collector to Peter outside the house. How would he know that, kids? Because he knows everything. In his omniscience, he's all-knowing. 
He's all-powerful. And he's gentle with Peter. Verse 25 is parabolic. This is not talking about Caesar or paying taxes to the government. Remember, that's not the focus here. He brings up kings of the earth and sons and strangers. What's he saying? The king doesn't tax his own family. The king taxes strangers. Jesus himself is the son of the king. Who's the king, kids? The father. He's the king of the temple. Jesus is the son with all glory. They just saw that in the transfiguration. So is Jesus exempt from paying the tax? Yes, he is. Jesus here is declaring his identity as the son of God. So then, what about Peter? Who pays the tax? Those who are Jesus' disciples are true sons of God. This is the grace of God in adoption. Behold what manner of love the Father has given that you should be called sons of God. You are heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ if you trust in him by faith. Again, the issue is trusting by faith. So those who pay are strangers, those who are not believing Christ as the Messiah. Not all Israel is true Israel. This is focusing us in on Christ, who is the temple of God. Jesus is God with us. He's greater than the temple. Why should he pay a tax for a symbol of a temple when he is the reality to which it points? Redemptive history is moving on. The claim for the two drachma tax will continue until the temple is destroyed 40 years after this. But that time is not yet. So you might be thinking, well, Jesus is not going to pay it. There's no way. He has an essential right not to pay it. But because he is our covenant mediator, because he comes to fulfill all righteousness, to keep God's law, to submit to the law in every way, even this particular unique part of it, He will pay the tax. R.C. Sproul. It's at the heart of the incarnation, the eternal Son of God, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, doesn't lay aside his deity, but he does lay aside the glory that attends to it. And he chooses instead of glory, humiliation, suffering, Death, making himself of no reputation, humbling himself even to the point of paying a temple tax that is in itself an insult to his glory. We see his power, we see his compassion. He cares more about the souls of others than he does about his own rights, our Savior does. He knows that tax collectors will be offended if he doesn't pay it. He knows that it'll reflect badly on Peter if he doesn't pay it. So as to not offend them, he will pay it. Paul picks up on this in Romans 14 when he speaks of things that are adiaphora, indifferent. When he says that in Christ you are free, but never use your freedom as a stumbling block to others, to those who are less mature. But kids, how is he going to pay it? 
Jesus didn't walk around with money in his pockets. He had no home on which to say, well, I'm going to take money from the mortgage. In fact, he, as far as we know, had no money at all. Peter, let's go fishing. My father will provide, Peter. This time, you're not going to take a net, but a hook. Jesus needs a two drachma coin. Peter needs a two drachma coin. So together, four drachmas is worth about $500 in today's currency. Kids, how often have you gone fishing with mom or dad, and you catch a fish, and inside the fish's mouth, you find five wads, or five total, $100 bills in a wad. $500. How, how often? Anybody? How does the coin get in the mouth of the fish? Do you notice that Jesus doesn't tell you? Either miraculously the Father puts it there, or as one pastor says, through the providence of God, a fisherman has a coin that drops out of his pocket, it rolls into the water, a fish comes and swallows it, and that's it. Either way, God does it. Either way, Jesus controls it. Either way, it's God's power at work in every detail here. Jesus, through this miracle, shows that he has more extensive domain than any earthly king. That even the fish of the sea swim and move and obey his will by his power. The fish pay tribute to him. He's sovereign in everything. It's mind-blowing. He has twice multiplied fish to feed the hungry, twice subdued the waters of the sea, and now again he shows his control over everything that he's made in creation. He shows his lordship. And how do we respond? By faith and in worship. Behold Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what your dad was saying over and over to me last week. Behold Jesus the Son of the living God. He was crying out to him and he he loves him and Jesus loves him. This is who Christ is, truly God and truly man, worthy of our worship. This shows us the gospel. In Exodus 30, a half shekel is paid as a ransom for life. That's the temple tax. What did Jesus come to do? He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came, as Matthew 17, 22 says, to be delivered up, to be delivered up by the hands of sinful men. Satan's involved behind it all, Judas and Herod and Pilate. But behind the scenes, controlling everything is the sovereign God, that the Father hands him over, that he is delivered up according to the foreknowledge and sovereign purpose of God for your salvation. Do you trust him, Emmaus wrote? Unbelief, unrepented of, will lead to hell. But if you say to God, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. Help me to trust in Jesus, to rest in the salvation he accomplished, to trust and receive his merits, his blood, his righteousness. Help my unbelief 
And as we go to the Lord's Supper now, here is another way that God builds up our faith in this divine Christ who has all power and compassion. As we meditate on his death and as we are strengthened in hope by the promise of his resurrection, that in all the trials of life we live in hope that Jesus will come again, that we will be where he is, that we will be made like him, that we will know him and enjoy him forever. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. As we prepare to